Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for June 23rd, 2021. Hello, and as always, welcome to Foreign Exchanges. Uh, it's great to have you, whether you're a first-time listener or a regular repeat uh, listener. Either way, it's great to have you. Uh, if you have never checked out the newsletter, uh, the podcast is only one part of, of what we're doing in Foreign Exchanges. So if you haven't checked out the rest of it, please come to fx.substack.com uh, and give it a look. I think you'll, if you find these podcasts interesting, I think you'll appreciate the work that's going on there. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined this week by a couple of people who are affiliated with the Fellow Travelers blog, which is another outlet that's sort of uh, looking at foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy from a left-wing perspective or progressive perspective perspective. Uh, I will be joined here in a moment on Zoom uh, by Kelsey Atherton, who's a defense technology journalist and repeat guest. I like to think of him as foreign exchanges drone correspondent, although I'm not sure uh, how pleased he would be with that, with that title. Uh, but uh, he'll be here along with Andrew Lieber, who is a PhD candidate uh, in Harvard's government school. Uh, as I say, they're both involved in the Fellow Travelers blog. If you're not familiar with Fellow Travelers, uh, I would I would say definitely check them out. Uh, Fellow Travelers blog, all one word, dot com. Uh, we've I've featured some of their pieces uh, here and there over the the years at for, at foreign exchanges uh, in the newsletter. Uh, they cover sort of uh, big picture issues and um, uh, look at ways that U.S. foreign policy can be taken or nudged or dragged kicking and screaming uh in a more progressive direction uh and i think they do they do very good work over there and, and definitely you should check them out uh they have just finished up a months-long project uh, it's a policy brief series uh that they're intending and you know they'll sort of talk about this in the in the interview uh but they're hoping can uh kind of make its way into some congressional offices, some of the offices of representatives who are amenable and, and interested in uh, a more progressive U.S. foreign policy uh, and kind of support what they're trying to do. Uh, so they've they've done nine policy briefs at the website, and they've now produced a physical copy, uh, a briefing book uh, of those nine briefs. And uh, again, they're hoping to uh, kind of raise money to get this uh, into congressional offices, get it distributed, uh, and hopefully to make this a, a sort of sustainable uh, thing that can can happen again and again. Uh, they've got a GoFundMe page set up. I'll have a link to that in the show description. If you are able to support the cause, uh, I would uh, highly recommend you do that. Uh, so as I say, Kelsey and Andrew are, are here. They are going to talk about the briefing project uh, and uh, fellow travelers in general. Uh, and then we're going to spend uh, the tail end of the interview uh, talking about drones because I can't have Kelsey on the show without talking about drones. And there have been a couple of recent uh, sort of pieces on uh, the drone industry that I, I flagged and wanted to, to chat with him about. Uh, one of them, of course, is, these, is this uh, kind of 
sketchy, uh, detail light uh, story about uh, possibly autonomous killer drones uh, being used in Libya. So we'll talk about the possibility, uh, whether whether that story was true or not, the possibility of uh, really autonomous uh, weapons of war that, that make decisions about uh, who to shoot at and who not to shoot at, make their own decisions. Uh, the possibility of those things coming into existence and, and the possibility of maybe uh, getting some kind of international movement together to, to sort of uh, regulate these kinds of weapons because it seems like they, they probably are coming at some level. Uh, and uh, it seems like that could be a potential uh, cause for concern. Uh, the other piece that we'll be talking about is one uh, that covered uh, Turkey's drone industry and the sort of rise of a, uh, you'll hear Kelsey describe them as the Honda Civics uh, of drones. <laughs> There's sort of this mid-level, um, not very fancy, not very expensive, uh, but still very capable uh, of getting the job done type of drone that I think lends itself to mass production in a way that really high-end U.S. drones, the Reapers, the the uh, Global Hawks, the the sort of really you know top of the line stuff that the U.S. Uh, uses uh, does not. Uh, but these drones, Turkey is really trying to make its position itself as a as an exporter of drones of the, these again these kind of uh, mid-range drones uh, that are affordable and the technology is not particularly sensitive, so it's uh, they're they're relatively simple to export. Uh, and, it, you know, the threat here is, uh, uh, I think, a, an explosion of drones uh, that will have implications for uh, war warfare and for, you know, sort of. Uh, not just the way that we fight wars, but how often we fight wars. Drones, to my mind, sort of make it easier uh, to undertake military action because the risks are not uh, the same as they are when you put actual human beings into combat. So we'll talk about the briefing book. We'll talk about drones. Uh, and with that, uh, let me get Kelsey and Andrew in here and we'll start the interview. All right. As promised in the introduction, I'm joined now by not one, but two uh, distinguished guests. I've got Andrew Lieber, PhD student at Harvard's Department of Government, uh, and returning guest, although it's been a while, actually, unfortunately, uh, Kelsey Atherton, who is a, a defense technology journalist. He's foreign exchanges drone correspondent, and he uh, has his own substack, Wars of Future Past. Uh, I'll have a link to that in the show description. Uh, both Kelsey and Andrew are involved uh, pretty heavily with the Fellow Travelers blog, uh, fellowtravelersblog.com. Again, I'll have a link to that also in the show description. And they've got a brand new project uh, that's just out, a, a briefing book uh, that includes several uh, kind of pieces, shortish, you know, digestible pieces on uh, uh, some of the key elements of U.S. foreign policy nowadays and, and how it can be improved. Uh, so uh, thank you both, Andrew and Kelsey. Welcome to the program and, and, and thanks for being here. Yeah, great to be here. Always a pleasure. Uh, so talk um, a little bit for people who aren't familiar with Fellow Travelers blog kind of generally, although you guys have been around for, for a while now. Uh, we've featured FTB pieces on occasion uh, at, in the FX newsletter. Um, but um, for people who are not familiar with Fellow Travelers blog, uh, what is it kind of how what was its kind of origins and, and um, you know, talk a little bit about that. 
Sure. Um, so Fellow Travelers Blog came about um, as uh, one of the many projects of sort of general uh, left frustration with everything um, in the Trump era, but specifically with a um, understanding that the way the U.S. conducts foreign policy is um, linked to uh, bad results domestically at home and also to harms abroad. And um, with the sort of uh, collapse of um, the previous sort of status quo Washington consensus um, democratic position in 2016, we, does, we set out to create this to imagine what it looks like if we had a foreign policy that matched um, that matched left values and that really accounted for building a better world for not just for Americans, but primarily for everyone in it, which could have, which should have a better effect for Americans, but also be generally better off for all involved. Um, and we've been uh, working for, for several years now. Um, and our, we have a briefing book that's a, and that Andrew will talk about in just a second. Um, that's sort of our first big stab at what does it look like to put forth a coherent left policy, but it's been from the start focused on um, expanding the vision of the possible um, in a way that uh, can safeguard the future against um, backslides from democracy and uh, tyrants who thrive on war nationalism. Um, Andrew, did you wanna add anything to that? No, I think that's fine. I think just um, the, I think one ambition for the platform, both in the past and going forward, is that it can be sort of a, you know, a platform or a convening ground for discussions and debates about left foreign policy, about what it is, about specific proposals, um, particularly as it can be, you know, it's getting better, but historically it's been difficult to find uh, spaces to sort of put those ideas out there, put them out uh, without, you know, conforming to the orthodoxy of existing think tanks in Washington, D.C. So, and Andrew, you can, you know, maybe speak to this. How did the briefing book idea come about? Was it basically kind of linked to the presidential election? Um, you know, was there any specific kind of uh, conversation or sort of a moment where the light bulb went on and just kind of, uh, we should do this? Uh, what was the, what were the sort of, uh, uh, what was the genesis of this project that you guys are working on or have worked on? Yeah, I may be getting this a bit wrong, but as best I can recall, um, a former congressional staffer for a Democratic congressperson who otherwise prefers to remain anonymous had reached out to us about just in general chatting about how we could have um, you know, sort of supportive of the idea of the blog and think wanted to chat a bit about how we might have more of an impact on policy. Um, and the general points they were making were that, you know, there is a desire or a need for more sort of digestible foreign left foreign policy ideas in Congress. You know, we're seeing in the past few years, um, congressional representatives, you know, Ilhan Omar, AOC, others um, sort of joining other individuals who have long held these foreign policy views like Representative Barbara Lee. Um, you know, who would certainly want to express these values in respect to foreign policy, but, you know, there's there's a longstanding industry ready to come up with 
or sort of ideas industry to quote Grant Dresner's book, um, ready to come up with sort of digestible ideas for why we need, you know, more sanctions on Iran, why we need sort of to defend military intervention in far-flung corners of the globe that uh, most congressional rush probably couldn't list, but there wasn't the same kind of infrastructure built up around sort of, you know, a digestible thousand word argument that could be further distilled into like a sentence or two about like why more sanctions are bad or like why they're morally problematic or why they're utterly ineffective. Um, and so we, you know, sort of myself along with others involved in the project, Kelsey, um, and other editors such as Emma Steiner, Yang Kwan and Sam Ratner and, and others involved in the blog, got together and decided, okay, you know, this might be, especially given that the presidential election is coming up, this might be a good time to think about, like, could we bring together individuals, especially since we know of, between us, a fair number of individuals in the sort of broad lefty foreign policy community, um, you know, reach out to them and try to get a few, I think, you know, we initially targeted a few more than wound up in the booklet, but you figure people are busy, um, but trying to get a broad coverage of specific proposals, um, on the subject of like, you know, something that you could hand to a congressional staffer and then they could then advocate for in US policy. And I think, you know, from the beginning, we, our assumption was that a lot of policy briefing booklets would be written about this time targeting, you know, the assumption of sort of like a Biden administration in, in part because it's hard to imagine what you would write to influence the Trump administration uh, unless it was just to be even crueler towards Iran, for example. But. <clears throat> I think we specifically wanted to make it usable more for congressional staffs viewing that as probably a more um, more likely source of uptake in the in terms of U.S. politicians than in the Biden administration, um, and partly because that also let us hedge a little bit in that you know if we were going to go through this effort and you know. Uh, we wound up with a second term administration that would still be <laughs> similar voices in in Congress who might be willing to to listen to some of what we had to say. And the other thing I want to um, add to all that is that foreign policy, um, and it's obviously the, the bread and butter of what fellow travelers talks about, but it's also the area that the executive has the most uh, freedom to act. Um, and so there isn't really, um, on vanishingly few parts of foreign policy, a filibuster matters. Um, so you can really set out a choice. And by, um, while we aren't uh, particularly, um, we're putting it out here and we're expecting it'll be more useful for uh, for members of Congress to um, sort of have in their toolkit of how to articulate a better vision. Um, but it would be entirely possible for the Biden administration to pick this up and adopt policy accordingly. Whether or not that's likely um, is, is a separate matter, but I think it's worth emphasizing the freedom of the executive to make these changes for the better anytime. Yeah, and in, and in looking back over the various proposals in here, you know, there, the, I was just sort of double checking today to make sure I had this right, but there is sort of a range of recommendations to what the executive branch might take up versus sort of Congress might press for sometimes both in one article, but, but also you figure even even if it's just members of Congress sort of publicly advocating these ideas, you know, I feel like we finally have a decent contingent of representatives in Congress who'd be willing to go out and, you know, publicly advocate for these ideas, you know, cynically or otherwise, you know, we have uh, Chris Murphy in the Senate is off writing in the Atlantic about how we need to have, and foreign affairs about how we need to have a new progressive foreign policy. Obviously that progressive foreign policy probably looks very different than, than others interpretation of what progressive policy is, but you still have have people who, if only sort of rhetorically, are willing to sort of champion some of these policies, press for them, and 
as we've already seen with the Biden administration, it may be a bit of a struggle to get some of these policies into practice, but they are willing to at least on occasion listen to uh, public pushback, even if it seems like it's only coming from, you know, one wing of the, de the Democratic Party, sort of what we saw with um, maybe most clearly with the, um, the sort of about face on, oh, actually, we're just going to do much fewer refugee intake than we promised on the campaign that generated a lot of blowback uh, and then quickly uh, sort of backtracked on that over the course of a weekend, but a small example, um, but, but, you know, maybe something that could be replicated going forward. The last 20 years have really been sort of um, a failure of building up um, and executing the same kind of machinery of foreign policy. A lot of, there are obviously marked differences between what the Bush, uh, Obama, and Trump administrations and now Biden administrations did, but many of them are matters of degree on these things, and they sort of all fall broadly within like a consensus DC vision of foreign policy, which is more or less explicit on the degree of cruelty. Um, and uh, Ben Rhodes, who uh, is uh, complicated to say the least, at least nailed it when he talked about there being a blob of foreign policy consensus. And um, the sort of mission statement of fellow travelers, and I think the policy uh, booklet really emphasizes that well, is that the DC, this, this blob consensus is sort of the professional foreign policy practitioner's view of foreign policy um, is not the only vision and it's wildly out of step with a lot of what uh, people in the United States and uh, generally want their elected leaders to be doing. Um, but it's hard to sort of emphasize that if you don't have the words for what a different foreign policy looks like. I think one of the things I really like about this project is that it, it is intended to kind of be put in front of people who can potentially affect policy on some level. Um, I know, you know, having been kind of peripherally, uh, you, you know, around the organizations that were advocating for the Iran nuclear deal back in 2015, uh, one of the big frustrations was that you had a lot of very polished um, well-funded, certainly, uh, media operations on the other side of that debate. And, and, you know, there were think tanks, Foundation for Defense of Democracies was the big one, sort of the big boogeyman, uh, that, you know, went to great lengths to uh, get to not just policymakers, but reporters and, and kind of uh, you know, get get their material in front of reporters. And, and we used to, you know, people used to get frustrated that uh, FDD was the only think tank that ever got quoted in the New York Times when they talked about Iran. Uh, but part of the reason is because they, you know, went to the, this this great effort to, to get outreach, to have an effective uh, outreach operation. And they had the resources, obviously, to, uh, to do it. Um, you guys are, are, you know, you produce the, these briefing books. Uh, talk a little bit about what you're doing now to kind of get them in front of people. And um, are there, you know, is there an, a, a hope to, to keep doing this and make it kind of a, a continuous uh, thing? Yeah, I think that, I think you make a really good point about the ability to sort of outreach and like ensure that people hear your perspective. Like I, I guess, just a full disclosure, I used to work for a branch of the Brookings Institution and have you know, been around a number of other think tank individuals and know how much work goes into cultivating media contacts, speaking with editors and journalists to sort of get almost pre-approval for quotes or pre-approval for putting articles out there. Um, 
And, you know, I think what we're hoping to leverage is the fact that you know, obviously Fellow Travelers runs off of uh, not as not nearly as much money as uh, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy. We calculated <laughs> it. And uh, what was it? The So we had a GoFundMe to produce uh, sort of physical copies of the booklet, which I'll get it to in a second. But we're, I think we raised a little over we raised a little over two thousand dollars up to now, which, as I calculated, was about 0.04% of CSIS's operating budget last year. So there's certainly a difference there, but I think one thing we could certainly leverage is that, you know, this is a, a community of lefty foreign policy people, that there are sort of journalists in the space, there are, you know, individuals at sort of existing think tanks. Uh, you know, you have the appearance of the Quincy Institute in the past few years, and you have other sort of individuals and programs at other think tanks who are at least somewhat sympathetic to these ideas. So there's certainly an ability, even with limited resources, we think, to leverage some of these connections to try to get it in front of individuals. So and I think that was one reason why, first of all, we really lucked out the, in the, the form of our graphic designer, Andy Vanzini, he gets good credit for the, what I think is you know, a beautiful design for the thing because it you know, just makes it much more aesthetically pleasing. But, but also, um, I think it was a reason why we wanted to turn it into sort of a graphically designed PDF booklet and ultimately print it as well to sort of, um, even if it's, uh, especially in the middle of a global pandemic, much easier to send a PDF file via email. I think there is a certain cachet to having a sort of physical object that you can leave in an office or mail to people. Um, you know, obviously nice for the contributors as well to give them something uh, as a token of our appreciation for the time and effort they put into it. Um, but also, you know, it's just a much, it just comes across as a much more sort of professional and considered document that, you know, even if the reasons why maybe that shouldn't matter in terms of how ideas are received, I think is unfortunately sort of the reality. Um, and, you know, we have uh, begun to, but are slowly getting up to it as we ma maneuver among all of our day jobs uh, to sort of send this out to different congressional representatives, some that we know, some that the off their offices, some of whom we, we know people affiliated with them, some of them were just sort of sending it out blindly, um, sending it around to sort of affiliated organizations. You know, there are a number of uh, organizations, Win Without War, uh, Cross DMZ, who've written for the blog or for this briefing booklet in recent months and years, going through them and like asking them in turn, you know, oh, like you wrote for this, we really appreciate it. Could you in turn sort of pass this on? And um, I think a lot of it is just going to be sort of, uh, you know, a learning experience over the course of the summer. We figure we have a few months now where things are a little bit calmer in Congress uh, and we can, you know, sort of quietly reach out and, and advocate a lot of these ideas. Talk a little bit about kind of let's let's um, we'll, and we'll we'll put a link to the the GoFundMe page in the show description for folks who want to help kind of uh, uh, sustain this effort. But um, let's get into the book. Uh, give us you know give people a little overview of uh, the pieces, the contributors, kind of you know in general terms, uh, what what uh, who and and what are we kind of talking about here. Yeah, so there's um, the, the the book has nine pieces with a total of ten contributors, um, and I guess we could sort of loosely group group them into like three uh, three like sub collections. You know, there's um, first we have three pieces by Kate Kaiser, of Women Without War, John Carl Baker of the Plowshares Fund, and Catherine Killow, formerly of uh, Women Cross DMZ, that together sort of talk about the importance and the political strategy of demilitarizing US foreign policy with Kate Kaiser advocating for uh, the opportunity we have this year now that the um, sort of 
is it called? The Budget Control Act of, do I have that correct? The, um, uh, yeah, the Budget Control Act of 2011 will expire this year, will, which opens up an opportunity to significantly renegotiate how much money the Department of Defense is going to be allotted to drastically reduce the amount of money that we afford the Defense Department while redirecting that money elsewhere. Uh, John Baker writes about the need to sort of draw down nuclear stockpiles and you know again redirect that money elsewhere um and captain killow talking about uh the importance of establishing lasting peace and de demilitarizing our foreign policy towards north korea um a collection of articles by two editors uh who work with the blog yang kwan and sam ratner as well as another friend of the blog taylor hines sort of collectively talking about how trade policy, U.S. sort of energy and climate policy can all uh, work together and be reoriented to build sort of a sustainable global and domestic coalition that will um, both make sort of make um, allow the, the the mutual gains from international trade that are possible to be sustained at home and abroad without reinforcing existing sort of inequalities and human rights abuses the world over um, that allow us to devote the the same kind of you know attention to the massive and you know potentially world ending well maybe not world ending but certainly world changing problem of climate change that we've obsessed over in the past in terms of pursuit of energy security that's sam ratner's piece and um also for taylor hines thinking about how the green new deal really needs to be taken internationally and built into us or us trade policy if it's going to be uh truly successful in in confronting the global impacts of climate change rather than just sort of pursuing some environmental policies at home and then finally sort of a collection of three um i guess more loosely connected uh, pieces on just the sort of global harms of U.S. policy. Um, Jacob Hamburger writing about uh, the need for immigration policy reform in order to uh, better accommodate individuals who are justifiably fleeing uh, sort of violence and devastation at home um, and sort of reducing as far as possible the amount of cruelty built into the system here within the United States. Um, I wrote an article sort of on the challenge of actually scaling back the extent of US economic sanctions deployed the world over, both in terms of talking about the many ways that uh, current sanctions policy falls short and is more about inflicting cruelty for expressive purposes than achieving any real uh, political means, um, and also talking about some strategies we might pursue to reduce that. And then finally, Dan Mahanti and uh, Ali Harputlian on um, sort of ways of addressing the US drone strike policies around the world and uh, finding ways for Congress to insert itself into uh, what has been mostly an executive branch operation with an aim towards restraining the extent to which drone strikes have been inflicted on populations around the world. So I, I wanted to kind of uh, dig in a little bit to your piece, since mm -hmm. obviously you're here to talk about mm -hmm. it, and uh, uh, that makes some sense, uh, logically speaking. Um, you wrote about uh, the U.S. kind of obsession with economic sanctions. The the head, the title of the piece is scaling back sanctions. Um, where you know, as you were kind of putting this paper together, um, where do you see sanctions policy um, now? You know, where is it kind of kind of uh, sitting? I mean, you talk about the sort of uh, move away from really comprehensive kind of collect you know a very 
very kind of explicitly collective punishment type sanctions like what the U.S. imposed on Iraq in the 1990s. Um, to more targeted approaches, but targeted approaches can be, uh, you know, very broad or very narrow, depending on how they're kind of organized. I mean, one of the uh, kind of innovations over the last, I guess, if you if you want to call it innovations over the last 15 years or so has been the kind of targeted to, to sector, you know, specific sector uh, sanctions, which is like, okay, well, uh, you could sanction the timber sector of an economy. Okay, fine. But you could sanction like the banking sector, in which case, guess what? Nobody's going to be able to have any economic activity. And it's, uh, you know, it can be very, it can still be very punitive and very broad. It seems like in these first few months under Biden, we've moved to an even more targeted, especially with uh, the situation in Myanmar, we've moved to an even more kind of targeted by individual, uh, you know, specifically to, to a person or to a specific entity rather than uh, going sector by sector. But I, I wonder, you know, kind of where you see the, uh, the, the sanctions consensus uh, right now at this, at this moment. Yeah, I think that um, I think that one of the reasons I was writing this piece is that it was somewhat striking how I think the conversation has changed in recent years. And I think I can't prove it, but I think part of that is due to, um, you know, the Trump administration being a sort of masks coming off moment for U.S. sanctions policy where, you know, especially under the Obama era with the, the sort of emphasis on, you know, Obama as some sort of like technocratic leader who was like, well, you know, maybe the results aren't great, but we can trust the, the, the process that he's going through with that. Um, under the Trump administration, it just became impossible to deny that large sections of the U.S. sanctions program are entirely about uh, sort of imposing uh, punitive costs on other countries for sort of expressive political benefits at home. I mean, especially with the sort of constant ratcheting up of sanctions on Iran, on Cuba, on uh, Venezuela, um, I think that became hard to deny. So certainly at an intellectual level, there's been the tone of most articles that have been written in the past few years is something like, well, well we okay, we know that we know there's a lot of problem with sanctions, but but don't worry, we, we have a technical fix for this problem. And and I think that second part, the focus on sort of a technical fix for this problem is where I'm trying to push back more here. You know, you read articles certainly by people who uh, you know what they're talking about in terms of how the sanctions programs work, like Edmund, Edward, I think one article I said is Edward Fishman in Lawfare, where they certainly point out the problems with economic sanctions and that they're, they're sort of, you know, imposed willy-nilly. There's not really a clear plan of action or theory of change behind them. Uh, more and more, it's less, we want this individual person to feel some degree of social sanctions uh, so that, you know, other officials like this individual might not pursue the same human rights abuses. And it's just become a very broad sort of like, you know, most recently with Biden, for example, we're going to, um, you know, disincentivize all cyber attacks by putting sanctions on the ability of the Russian government to sell debt on international markets. Um, or, uh, you know, these are just not, uh, I guess the other problem being also that they don't really tend to, the sanctions never really tend to end. You know, some individuals may come off, for example, but if you look at, you know, even with the Biden administration, we're what, like five months in now, you look at uh, sanctions on Venezuela have been completely maintained. Sanctions on Iran, a few individual sanctions have been listed, lifted as a prelude to negotiations. And we've also stopped enforcing sort of UN sanctions that Trump imposed that the rest of the international community just didn't follow him on. 
Um, sanctions on Cuba that were expanded under Trump, all maintained up through now. Russians, sanctions on Russia um, maintained and even expanded and also maintained and expanded in Nicaragua. So there's really a challenge in terms of reducing existing sanctions. And also, you know, there's not really a machinery in place for if the Biden administration wanted to impose new sanctions, there's really not much sort of legislative machinery in place for Congress to insert itself into that discussion. Um, and, you know, as we've seen, typically, the kind of sanctions programs that run on for a long time tend to be uh, imposed on countries that do not have a lot of public support within the United States. So it becomes very costly for Congress to sort of take the initiative, take time out of the legislative calendar to pass something specifically to curtail an existing sanctions regime. Whereas um, if you modify the legislation this is taking place under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977 to put something like what we have in place for uh, U.S. arms sales that provides more of a institutional procedural path for particular Congress people or congressional reps to interrupt the process of imposing sanctions or sort of, you know, maybe leverage U.S. industry objections to imposing sanctions, um, that could build sort of more institutional checks and more points of leverage for Congress to at least prevent new forms of sanctions from going into effect and maybe using that as a platform to press for, you know, a more regular review of existing sanctions to try and wind these back rather than it just being something, you know, like Cuban sanctions programs have been going on since before I was born. And I think depending on the year, probably since before my parents were born. So and with no end in sight. So. Well, this is <laughs> one of the one of the things that um, is frustrating, I think, about the discourse about sanctions. I, I was going to you know, sort of take the optimistic to you know, talk about it, something optimistic, which is not uh, usually my approach in this podcast. But one of the things I, I feel like we're seeing is a change in uh, the way the media reports on uh, these technical fixes or exemptions and, and you know, the, the, the kind of carve outs that the government makes, that the U.S. government makes to absolve itself of, of harmful kind of uh, un, uh, you know, uh, unanticipated or sort of undesirable consequences. And again, you know, going back to the sort of uh, discussions that I remember happening around the Iran deal. I mean, the Obama administration obviously put uh, Iran under some some fairly substantial economic sanctions, not to the level of the Trump administration, but uh, fairly substantial. Uh, and it would always, and the Trump administration did this as well, and you see it kind of happening over and over again, it would uh, make sure to leave these carve outs for food and medicine, other humanitarian goods. Uh, they were never supposed to be uh, you know, covered under sanctions policy. And yet uh, you would see these very broad uh, sanctions against, uh, again, for example, uh, the banking sector, you, you know, the Iranian economy that made it so, okay, uh, it's it's legal or it's allowed under these sanctions for the Iranians to import food, but they can't pay for it because you've cut off uh, all their avenues of, of kind of doing that. And I, I feel like there's a little more awareness uh, uh, that these exemptions are not kind of on their face sufficient and that there are these kind of knock on effects to broad-based sanctions. At the same time, uh, one of the things that's most frustrating, I think, to, to read uh, the way the media reports on new sanctions is there doesn't seem to ever be any 
discussion of whether or not these things work, you know, if they, if they ever achieve an end other than kind of imposing sanctions or, or kind of punishing people. There's never any, uh, at least I don't see uh, much discussion about whether this ever achieves the aims that, that it's supposed to achieve. And we can go all the way back to the Cuban embargo, uh, which, you know, what did that accomplish? And I wonder, you know, as you were kind of uh, putting this together, were, were there places where you felt like, kind of specific places where you felt like the, the discourse on sanctions was improving and uh, places where you really felt like it was frustrating to see uh, the way we're still talking about this stuff? Yeah, I guess it's um, maybe I think the discourse is always where I'm the most optimistic on this because you know you now have you know voices like uh, not to focus on her too much, but Representative Ilhan Omar and others who are really I think pressing the moral case against sanctions. You know, you could get something like an article from Peter Beinert in the New York Times just flat out saying like, look, most of U.S. sanctions policy is economic siege warfare. Even if you're claiming that there's these like very technical procedures and like these theories of change cooked up by someone with a PhD from Georgetown sitting in the State Department somewhere, like at the end of the day, it's just, you know, economic costs imposed on people that most Americans don't interact with so that like some politician can get like, I don't know, plus two percentage points in the next, you know, next time they go to the polls. Um, so I think that there's really been an effort to, and a successful effort to at least incorporate the costs of this. And even if it's for cynical reasons, you know, citing those costs as an example of why sanctions aren't just like a unilateral good for the United States. They're like damaging you know, US reputation abroad to the extent that people care about that. Um, they're not achieving their goals. Um, they're often just these, yeah, purely punitive measures. They're imposing economic sanctions on ultimately amounting to the Iranian pharmaceutical sector as well in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, I guess what the, what's been frustrating then is you know, how little of that seems to translate over into policy. Like the, the discourse has improved. The, the challenge is I think now to get to a point where you can translate that discourse into actual sort of meaningful change. Um, you know, so yeah, and then on the one hand, you know, maybe that involves like Congress either, you know, if Congress isn't going to be able to actually change statutes or legislation, then at least holding more hearings to publicize the fact that like, you know, the government, I think I'm pretty sure the government accountability office itself has said like, we're not really seeing a whole lot of success in terms of sanctions, like even the US government's own reviews struggle to point to a lot of clear-cut successes on sanctions. You know, maybe when it comes to uh, U.S. security partners and allies, we've been able to change behavior, um, but those typically don't tend to be the countries that wind up with multi-generational sanctions regimes that cripple economies by multiple percentage points. Um, and, you know, if nothing else, at least if Congress is sort of holding these hearings and the House Foreign Affairs Committee or the Senate Foreign Relations Committee are like demanding answers about like, how does this sanctions policy uh, sort of do anything for us? You know, this particular one, there's like 20, 30 ongoing at any one moment. Um, at least that starts to put some pressure on it. And hopefully, you know, over the course of the next two to four years, builds maybe momentum towards giving Congress a greater statutory law. Like, I know this sounds very gradualist and incrementalist, and I wish it could be much more. It's just hard to know. Um, and I think, I guess what I pointed to a little bit in the piece, but probably could have developed more was thinking about you know, other ways that like, like if there is this political need for some sort of like credit claiming towards imposing some costs on, uh, on others, 
you know, at least finding other ways that like have some mutual gains for the United States rather than just imposing this abroad. You know, like if we're going to clean up our domestic financial system to remove the ability for shell companies to be stacked one within another in a way that, you know, prevents sort of foreign kleptocrats from stashing money in the U.S. banking system. Like, sure, that'll impose costs on them. And you can claim it as like a benefit for American citizens that like the U.S. financial system is less of a, you know, convoluted shell game. Um, but focusing on that uh, rather than just leaving sanctions as this uh, go-to for like, you know, I think you see even with the Biden administration so far, like in terms of Russia, like, oh, you know that we're doing something on uh, on sort of Russian cyber attacks because we put some sanctions on on like the, 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 yeah, the ability of the Russian government to sell debt in U.S. financial markets. You're like, well, I don't. I guess in the new, even in when it gets written up, you'll see the theory of change given as like, well, the Russian economy is vulnerable right now, and this will hinder the Russian economy, and then that'll uh, somehow translate into change the Russian cybersecurity policy, which is, you know, a bit. We'll see how that one could play out going forward. I guess. <laughs> yeah, there's sort of a big empty space in the middle with like a question mark, and then success. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like that. Uh, what is it? The old, the old internet meme where it's like you know, like four question marks and then profit. Uh, right, right. Exactly. Policy change. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to ask both of you, and you know, Kelsey, we, you can kind of get back in this uh, as well. Um, having gone through this this project, and uh, you know, I, admittedly, you guys you know didn't write every single one of these things, but you've looked at them and. Uh, you kind of put the book together to to sort of try to affect policy change. Um, this is a project that began, obviously, you know, with Donald Trump in office, and it looked looking like he was probably going to lose, but you didn't know. Um, obviously, Biden was elected. He's now taken office. Uh, do you see anything over the last, you know, five months, um, especially in light of some of the things that are talked about in the briefing book? to that, that sort of makes you think there's been an improvement or anything that makes you think we're kind of backsliding or just kind of remaining in stasis and i you know i i feel like there've been a couple of developments the afghan withdrawal in theory depending on uh, how that actually is implemented um you know now the discussion about finally repealing uh, the Iraq War, AUMFs, both of them, all you know, going all the way back to the, the Gulf War, uh, you know, there's there's now some legitimate kind of movement in, in that direction in Congress. Uh, so I, I feel like there's a couple of things going on here that that could be kind of signs that that of improvement. But I don't know. I I, I want to kind of get your uh, your takes on that. Sure, I can jump um, in here. Um... I think one of the things, I mean, I think the the, with, the withdrawal is an interesting one um, because it doesn't seem like it really would have existed without um, the sustained uh, emphasis on foreign policy, like to the extent that there was one in the long primary, it very much feels like it is uh, sort of Biden getting to win a fight he lost in the Obama administration. Um, Doing it, and so that one feels as much driven by personal preference as the sort of constituency and drive for um, foreign policy, and specifically, like it's out of a um, sense that there isn't really anything that the U.S. has tried for. Uh, it'll be twenty years in the fall, and hasn't really um, been able to do the sort of achieve what it set out to do with the tools 
it had, and there's a sense that the, it, there's not something new that will change that will happen there. So it's it, um, it's a weird one, but I think the fact that it's happening at least exists to openness to uh, making a break from the last 20 years of foreign policy. Um, there's been sort of the contested uh, change on U.S. policy to Yemen, which has been, um, is the U.S. no longer like actively refueling Saudi planes in flight? What is the degree of not providing um, tangible military support to uh, Saudi's cruel bombing campaign um, and war? There, There's a lot in there. And so I think what um, my understanding of how left foreign policy is playing out in a Biden administration is not, I think the the um, top level staffers on almost every level uh, come from, and certainly Biden comes from a long tradition of consensus foreign policy. But I think what we're seeing is that to get people to work in those offices um, sort of below the top level, you have people who at least have the experience of witnessing the last 20 years as of mostly stagnation and failure. Um, and they're going to come to it with different ideas. I don't know necessarily if they're coming to it with more left ideas, but they're looking for other approaches and other ways to emphasize it. And they've been malleable to some degree. Um, the, the sort of, if we've seen a pattern yet, it's been the Biden administration will walk back, will have made a good promise on the campaign, will walk it back in policy, and then will walk back the walk back um, after some public pressure, like we mentioned earlier on um, refugee limits. I mean, we also saw this with a move to um, sort of uh, take in more people, um, especially uh, who worked with the US military in Afghanistan um, back into the United States for fear of retaliation. So there's some movement on this space, but um, I'm curious to hear what Andrew thinks. Yeah, I was going to say sort of a similar thing to this, where I I don't know how far I would trust the Biden administration's instincts in foreign policy, but I think also one of the big lessons of the Obama era was that like it would be a mistake to just sort of you know, put all of your eggs in the basket of like either hoping the chief executive just has the right ideas or that you can like write the right policy brief that somehow like Biden is going to read and then adopt the correct policy like this stuff will like I think that the, the best thing to be said for the, the Biden administration is that there's a clear opening for some people in the administration to be persuaded of these ideas or sort of convinced that the political costs of not pursuing them would be like more than than you know, pursuing them in the sense that you know if you can build up support for policies in Congress uh, that they will react to that pressure in a way that does make at least raises the possibility of some of these policies being enacted now that does set you know a particular challenge before this because it's not really clear what there is a consensus for what the administration will necessarily give ground on but at least is i guess somewhat encouraging and you know honestly like given how the midterms might go there may not be a long window where there is sort of at least nominal majorities in the senate the house um and you know democratic control of the presidency for some of these policies to get put through so i um, you know, maybe some of these I'm more optimistic of than, than others, but I do think there's at least an opening. Uh, and I think, again, that's why we focus so much on Congress, that there is an opening for individuals to take some of these policies and try to run as far as they can with them in terms of both educating the public, building a sense of public support or revealing the extent of public support that already exists for much of this, um, and then trying to take that to the Biden administration and see what they can get. 
I want to shift gears a little bit to um, Kelsey's uh, beat here <laughs> and talk about uh, drones. The the last of the the nine uh, policy briefs was uh, the piece that you you mentioned earlier uh, on the the U.S. drone habit and kind of getting away from uh, drone strikes as a favorite tool of uh, policymakers. Uh, there have been a couple of developments uh in the field of kind of drone warfare of late and a couple of pieces that um i've seen kind of come across my my path uh that i wanted to get uh especially kelsey's take on but andrew you know certainly uh you know feel free to to uh jump in here as as you want to um one of them was a piece uh a couple of weeks ago i guess now by uh, Al Monitor's Turkey columnist, Metin Gurjan, uh, about the Turkish government. And these both actually, both of these stories kind of have to do with Turkey in, in a fundamental way, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but uh, this one uh, was uh, headlined, Will Washington Buy Ankara's Drone Crescent uh, Against Russia? And it's premised on uh, sort of the success that Turkish drones have had uh, in combat against Russian backed armies in Libya uh, and in the Caucasus, although you know the extent of Russia's involvement in that conflict was a little bit uh, uh, shady. but uh, certainly you know Turkish drones were were decisive in Libya and sort of turning back the Libyan National Army's offensive on Tripoli. Uh, they seem to have been fairly decisive in the the war in Karabakh in the fall. Uh, and there's a, a sense that, um, or the, the piece talks about this sort of, I think, different approach that Turkey has taken uh, to developing drones. Um, and I want to get your take on this. There's there's sort of a range of possibilities when you, you're talking about kind of drone weapon systems, all the way from uh, the sort of very expensive, bespoke kind of uh, high-end models that we see the United States use, uh, down to something you wrote about on Substack today, like something really basic, like an, an arson balloon, which is the sort of, you know, the... Uh, Gaza, you know, in, in, in Gaza, it's become the Israelis' excuse for bombing Gaza lately. Uh, but in the middle, there is this uh, wide swath, I think, of, of territory, and, and Turkey has occupied a position in this, uh, where you can develop drones that aren't maybe as uh, elegant or as efficient as these very high-end U.S. drones, but they get the job done, and they're much cheaper uh, and there's, you know, they're they're not uh, they don't bring the same kind of complications of having uh, very advanced kind of proprietary technology built into them. Uh, this seems like an obvious uh, thing. I, I kind of wonder why the United States has has gone the route it did. But I wonder if you you had some thoughts about where the the drone market is going here, and are we heading more toward a kind of swarm of I guess Kmart level drones versus the kind of really high end uh, drones that that uh, have have dominated coverage of of this market. Yeah, so I think um, there's uh, there's a lot going on with how the U.S. first developed its drone program and then how it felt about exporting it, which is sort of the the uh, subtext of Turkey's drone program is that the US has been weird about export controls on, um, 
on its like predators and reapers and its uh, gray eagles, all those sort of variants. Oh, really? It's um, high level stuff. They are formally governed, I believe, by uh, ITAR, which like governs uh, missile technologies. It's um, there's a state office that has to like check off and approve on uh, foreign sales. And there, the Obama administration was more restrictive on this. The Trump administration tried really hard, and I think succeeded in relaxing some of the sales restrictions on this, um, which is sort of the weird thing of like, it's both foreign policy and a direct like handout to defense contractors. Um, but the United States viewed it as sort of, this is a special weapon that we produce that is used for like, we specifically want to see this used in war on terror type situations. We want to sell it to allies so that they can do the drone striking of uh, insurgent groups or non-state actors themselves. Um, and what Turkey did, um, which had been by and large cut out of US drone sales is they sort of built their own thing, which isn't, um, it's not high end, but like it, it's, I think the, the Kmart of it, I was debating whether or not I wanted to call it, this is the Honda Civic of drones or the, <laughs> drones. but the, the uh, Bactire TB2 um, is really, it does 90% of what anyone could, any country could possibly want a drone to do. It operates at a far enough distance. It can be armed. It carries sensors. It relays that to command and control, which um, the U.S. certainly operates on a global scale, but most countries are operating on the um, hundreds of miles scale at the furthest from where they're fighting or they're um, managing a war. So it works super well in those needs. And then the other thing is that um, it's seen a lot, this drone has seen a lot of use um, in the various uh, fighting in Libya. It's um, Turkey itself obviously uses it. They've sold it to Ukraine recently, um, which has its own uh, ongoing uh, conflict that is, it's, I, I wanted to say state level, but that's not quite right, but it's certainly a lot more formalized front lines than we think of for sub-state conflicts these days. Um, and so Turkey found sort of a, a market and a political willingness to use drones this way, and they built the drone to it. They've sold it. It does what it needs to do. Um, it's interesting because really um, it, it's cheaper by a lot than what the U.S. is uh, selling and has weird restrictions on selling. Not weird. I should say those restrictions are in place because um, drone striking is uh, by and large a way of war that kills civilians a lot without a ton of accountability. There's reasons to be skeptical of selling this. Um, but what they did- now, they And I think it also stems from the fact that the US has gone in this direction of, of the very expensive kind of high-end technology that you don't necessarily wanna put on the mass market because you wanna keep you know keep it as close to the chest. So part, a part of it I think is, is a function of the way the United States has, has decided to approach building and, and kind of uh, developing these weapons. Right, and so often um, one of the things that came up, especially like when we were talking about um, US restrictions on Yemen is would the US be still doing like drone flights to provide intelligence because there are very powerful cameras on these drones, but these drones also um, by and large are pretty easy to shoot down with any armed aircraft or with um, some anti-air weapons. And it's not the thing you want to have like recovered and reverse engineered too. And you also, the US likes to make itself invaluable by being the country can someone else's bombs hitting where it um, identifies a target has been a strategy that's worked for these kind of proxy wars. Um, 
turkeys, drones, do it all in one. Um, they're sort of the market they're actually competing against really is like China exporting in a similar space. Um, and so I think it's, it's interesting that this is sort of, this was never a technology that was going to be exclusively held by the United States. It's, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that it's Turkey that is doing it, that it's doing it around US restrictions, which exist for both protectionist and humanitarian reasons. Um, there's a lot going on here, but I think the um, one thing to, to emphasize with this kind of drone, this level of drone warfare is that these are, um, the, the, the back to our TP2, right, is specifically human controlled, it's human piloted. There is a person um, at a control center in with a communications link to the drone um, at all times, basically. And it may fly waypoint routes, it may um, have some autonomous functions, but the targeting, the steering, the operating is a thing a person does and you can trace to a chain of command in the military. What do you feel are the sort of the implications uh, if this is where drones are heading? What, what are the implications of this? And I, I thought about this and I, I kind of have uh, two, <laughs> two ways that this could be interpreted. On the one hand, uh, you know, if you move away from uh, these very elite drones that you really don't want to fall into enemy hands. You don't want to, to see them get shot down and uh, kind of have that technology captured. They're expensive. Uh, they're really kind of high-end assets. You get situations where, uh, you know, what we saw last or a couple of years ago uh, when Iran shot down a, a, a U.S. drone and, and there was this moment where everybody kind of looked at each other and we're like, are we going to go to war over a drone? Like, is this a thing that's going to happen? Like, we're going to do airstrikes. And in fact, the Trump administration had planned retaliatory airstrikes for shooting down a drone uh, that only one of, you know, Trump's kind of patented <laughs> ridiculous uh, on the spur of the moment changes of mind kind of stopped this from happening, which I guess is a point in his favor. Uh, but there was really kind of a, a, a thinking or, a, you know, kind of a, a, a thought that this could be a legitimate reason to, to retaliate and kill people over the downing of a drone. That seems like it would be less of an issue if you're flying the Honda Civic of drones and you don't really care that they get shot down. They're not that expensive. The technology isn't all that valuable. Uh, you know, you don't worry that it's going to fall into enemy hands. On the other hand, if you're flying these lower end models, you can build a lot more of them. You can use them in a lot more places. And as you said uh, earlier, that that means, you know, more strikes where more people are getting killed. So I guess on the net, I would say this is not a good development, but I don't know. I'd like, uh, I, I'm curious so what your thoughts are. So, so a few things, one of the things, um, and this is sort of a, to, to throw back to how fellow travelers is like looking at a break in how we think about foreign policy. When the global hawk was um, shot down, there was a real rash of, uh, of commentary and like the go-to cable experts would talk about how, oh, this is a hundred million dollars. This is like a several billion. They're, they're looking like they're, this is a plane that costs this much money. They were emphasizing how expensive it was and it is. The global hawk is a, a super expensive um, drone, it's, it's, it's about the most expensive, I think, that we've fielded. Um, and they were talking about it as like a plane, and here's this big expensive thing that got shot down. And then the, the reported versions that I've, I've seen, and I, I tend to agree to on for why Trump called off the airstrike, 
is he was for it when you thought it was a plane shot down and he was against it when it was just a drone. Um, because that the element of there being a person killed when the thing is shot down um, matters more than however expensive it is. Um, you can, um, it was something that we, that I like was in a uh, war game put on by CNAS back in 2016. They invited some journalists to participate and I, we had speculated this might be the case and it was something that sort of played out that um, countries can think about it differently if it's not a person getting shot down when a drone gets shot down. But like the blob was leaning towards like we want to emphasize how expensive this thing is and how much it really matters. And uh, it's a deeply unhelpful way to think about things, right? Like getting into a shooting war over a um, old model expensive sensor system isn't particularly a good idea for anyone involved. Um, and so what we will see as the sort of the um, proliferation of drones, and I say proliferation as though this is like the, the secret of splitting it out and pass it out. Drones are, are uh, simple technology. There's very cheap commercial versions. Um, when you have remote control, when you can rely on GPS, when computer parts are cheap, when cameras can get cheap enough, then you put them all in an airframe, you can get flight uh, software. It's not hard for countries to do this just based on what's in the open market and then to build sort of higher, more secure military versions. But when you have more countries are going to use them, it's sort of the idea that the United States was the only country that would do drone strikes as a, a woefully um, time limited in how much it applied. And then um, and engineering policy around like the US can set precedent, but it can't really dictate the shape of how the world would use these things once they could make them on their own. So we're going to see more drones. We're going to see it more common. And then there's a, um, and that means, right, that the, uh, it'll follow sort of the developments we saw with, uh, with bombing from aircraft and with artillery before that, that the more distance you can put between people putting a shot on a target, um, there's going to be some more freedom of it and comfort in people doing that. They might see kind of different targets as valid. Um, one of the things we saw the early use of drone strikes sort of paralleled the early use of cruise missiles where it's like, oh, well now we can just, we have a thing that can navigate to a specific point. So we know that we can hit that thing. Therefore it's a valid reason to, if we can do this attack, why shouldn't we try to assassinate Gaddafi or uh, Bin Laden with cruise missiles, which uh, were one of the things was a thing that actually happened and the Clinton called off the Bin Laden attempt. Um, so you have this sort of idea that once you have precision, you can do more attacks. And once you have range, you can do attacks without risking a lot. Um, we're going to see more of that. Um, but the we should, if there's a preference to be had here, it's that we should have a preference for it's still happening in a chain of command with humans directing it with sort of a one-to-one -one at least or several to one humans to robot ratio um, because that makes it somewhat more accountable, at least makes it accountable to in terms of the laws of war. And it means that we are trusting uh, human judgment, which is at least a somewhat understood factor rather than um, trusting kill decisions to artificial intelligence. <laughs> You're, you're taking us, yeah, you're taking us into the next question, my next question. Um, the, the, uh, I, I think on some level the, there's a, a similarity between sanctions and drones. There's a sort of sense that the cost for using these things domestically is not very high. Uh, so it doesn't really matter what happens on the other end. It doesn't matter if you kill civilians. It doesn't matter if you starve civilians because they're out of sight, out of mind. You're worried about your domestic audience, and here you've got this technology that allows you to 
uh, preserve pilots lives, which is the things that, you know, kind of really get uh, can get you into hot water or, uh, you know, to do nothing other than kind of issuing a, a piece of paper that says we're sanctioning uh, this country's central bank, which is completely, you know, low cost. And, and you know, th there's a real imbalance in terms of the effect that these things have overseas versus the, the kind of cost that you have to pay uh, for imposing them. Uh, but the, you, you did kind of preview uh, the next, my next question here, which was this, uh, I'm sure you have seen this, uh, the story that, that broke uh, last month, it's been actually about a month ago, uh, about a Turkish-made drone, a Cargo 2 drone uh, in Libya that may have been operating autonomously during the the retreat as the Libyan National Army was kind of uh, retreating from Tripoli. Uh, there were reports of a drone or maybe more than one drone kind of pursuing and engaging targets, uh, possibly autonomously. We really don't know. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to ask you, first of all, you know, what have you seen about this? Um, you know, do we, is there kind of, what is the evidence that this thing where these things were operating uh, without human control? Um, and does it matter? Because it feels like we're at the point of talking about it as a realistic thing anyway. So we're really, if we're not there already in the era of uh, autonomous drones kind of making decisions about who gets to, uh, who gets shot at and who doesn't, we're almost there. So what, what did, what, what was your take on, on this story and kind of the implications of it? Yeah. So I think fundamentally we don't have a great um, understanding of what counts as autonomous um there's a lot there's a lot at play there's the autonomous navigation there's autonomous uh object recognition there's um threat detection there's targeting there's um identifying there's how a computer will i detect and identify a um an object a person or a vehicle um the companies usually emphasize vehicles but sometimes they'll just say like oh yeah our camera system can distinguish between a uh, civilian and an armed combatant, which is a wild thing to claim, um, but they will say that. And the, uh, there's a lot of different degrees of autonomy. These are all sort of put together. And then the, the sort of feared version um, is that you have a machine that can identify a target on its own, fly towards it, give, the, um, give itself an order to uh, shoot, and then um, report back to a human, or maybe, maybe that's even irrelevant at the point of this autonomy, but it will, it will find, identify, and attack all on its own. Um, I don't know yet if we've had anything that conclusively argues. Um, I think autonomous navigation is the most likely uh, thing that happened in Libya. It might be autonomous navigation and target identification. It might be all three. It's, um, it, the evidence in the open source has been uh, confusing and unclear. Um, but regardless of whether or not that was a specific thing that happened, um, it's super important for to think about weapons going forward, about what that autonomy means, about what it means when those things are connected and what it means when those things are working together. Um, various militaries will define, will say the, the most militaries um, are on record 
saying that they want humans um, either in the loop, which means that the machine has to ask before it shoots, or on the loop, which means it notifies, but um, will shoot anyway, and the human has the ability to stop it. Sort of, it's is the human giving permission, or is the human uh, possibly standing to say no? Um, and there's more. There's this is a complex and technical debate, but the um, it's hard to get militaries to agree to not develop a weapon they think everyone else is developing, which is a big part of the whole mix. And then it's also hard to get them to agree to a definition where the thing they're afraid a country, another country will do is the thing that they're actually working on. Um, and what the likely outcome is, is that we will see various degrees of autonomy. We see this already. There are already um, military center systems that can uh, identifying track targets, but they check in with humans first. There are already um, autonomous navigation in uh, in vehicles and especially in, in flying drones, um, but anything underwater has to basically operate under a degree of autonomy or follow a preset path. And so we're gonna see a lot more autonomous machines underwater. Um, and then one of the other huge parts of this um, is anything that is a swarm has to be autonomous to a large degree, at least in navigation. Um, because it has to communicate and fly around all the other vehicles it is moving with. Um, and what it means, uh, it's, it's technical problems being solved. There are engineers doing this and they're doing it in some degrees um, with an understanding of what happens if it goes wrong. But by and large, they're trying to solve the problem of can it happen at all first? Um, and I think that's a lot of scary implications Applications for people who have to um, exist in places where autonomous machines might be used because it's very hard to trust that the machine will be um, coded without in, in a respectful way. And also, error is just an inevitable part of all of this. So the... the um... There was a piece uh, again earlier this month in, in World Politics Review from Charlie Carpenter, who's an international law scholar at UMass Amherst, arguing that uh, these reports of, of potentially autonomous drones, again, as you say, with the, the uh, evidence is, is spotty and we don't really know what happened, but just the fact that they were being reported and sort of the, the um, public outcry uh, about these reports uh, may invigorate uh, international efforts to draw up some kind of regulation over um, autonomous weapons platforms. And, you know, there are challenges to this, uh, one of which you've, uh, you know, articulated very well here that, that we don't really have a great definition of what autonomous an autonomous weapon system actually is um, and, you know, what constitutes autonomy. Uh, I guess my, my question to you would be, do you have any hope that this is uh, something that can actually come together, that, that there can actually be a um, not just an international effort to draw up uh, kind of rules of the road about these things, but that countries will actually abide by them. And by countries, I basically mean the United States uh, and other major powers, China, Turkey, Russia, you know, Turkey in this space, at least. Uh, where's your, what's your sense of kind of optimism or pessimism about this? So I think there's the potential to um, have sort of, uh, I think, I think um, meaningful human control is sort of a stance that like European Union countries have been pushing um, a lot in this 
Um, and I think there's a space, I think there's the potential in the next uh, five, 10 years campaign to stop killer robots has been at this for um, at least since 2013, probably earlier um, on this. So I think there's the potential to make a meaningful thing where you have to agree to, and it has to be, um, it sort of has to fall into that sweet spot of a weapons ban where the weapon has to be dangerous enough that countries don't want to fight against it and useless enough that countries don't want to use it, um, which is sort of um, how we have with uh, chemical weapons bans and with um, landmine bans by and large. Um, we're sort of shaped by that. Blinding lasers bans have been trickier because um, countries want to use them to blind sensors, but they don't want to like have their own soldiers blinded um, in the field. And that's been a trickier one to go to, but you sort of have to get into the sweet spot and you have to convince um, not just that there's a humanitarian concern, which there obviously is, uh, but you have to convince the military. And this is a this is emphasizing on like the generals in command um, and and the politicians over with them that you don't want a machine that acts in a way you cannot predict or control. And if you're building an autonomous weapon, you're doing that. Um, because that's sort of the thing that is, I think the likeliest way to stop it is to emphasize the degree to which deploying an autonomous weapon is different than deploying um, a like guided weapon. Um, this might mean that we'll see weapons if, and that's like the optimistic case, right? Is that we can convince militaries they don't want a robot that can fly out, track, and um, destroy any target within a set profile. Um, and that's hard because some of these things already exist. We haven't talked about it yet um, on this, but uh, Israel has a very um, established drone industry. And one of the kind of drones they use um, is a, it's a loitering munition. They, um, there's the Harup and the Harpy, and they fly, they look for radar signatures of anti-aircraft radar, and then they basically um, can turn into a missile and destroy um, those installations, which is mainly destroying a radar and then anyone who happens to be nearby. It's an explosive. It's um, There's only so much you can limit on that. Um, they did design less autonomy in the subsequent version of it, which is an interesting choice to make and acknowledge as this kind of limitation. But we might get to a point where like that kind of weapon is valid where it is trained on a sensor that only militaries will have, but one that will like look for humans specifically can be put off the table. I'm not super optimistic, but I want to acknowledge that there is an optimistic case out here. Um, if you convince the military that they don't want a machine that accidentally turns on um, civilians or their own troops because it misreads a signal, then you can probably get them on board with some degree of a ban. Andrew, I feel like we've uh, <laughs> you, you haven't talked oh, for a while. Did you want to jump all. in? It's like, yeah, just uh, unfortunately, goats aren't my uh, necessarily my strong suit as a foreign policy knowledge. But but I think uh, just building a bit off of what Kelsey's saying and, and looping a bit back to the the briefing booklet and uh, the the goal of fellow travelers in the block in general is just I think the importance of building some degree of public support or some kind of political coalition behind any sort of effort to impose, I don't know, normative constraints on, on something like uh, the use of drones, you figure, um, obviously, it's been, if you think of political assassinations, for example, obviously, every presidency since uh, we nom the United States nominally banned the pursuit of political assassinations has pursued something that we could define as assassination since, but you still had, in the wake of the Watergate hearing and the, the revelations of the Church Commission, you did have this sort of public outcry that was then 
coded into some sort of written norm against the use of political assassinations as a tool of US foreign policy, at least overtly. Um, and you could imagine the importance of something similar in here, even if you can't leverage quite the same degree of uh, domestic political developments, but building some sort of public pressure behind this idea such that you're not solely relying on just sort of convincing military leaders that this is a good idea, but you have incentivized political actors within the US government to make it very clear to military leaders like why they need to take this seriously and why even if they have some objections, those are secondary to the importance of, of you know, instituting such a norm. I think that's uh, that's a good place to leave. We kind of brought things back full circle and back to the briefing book and fellow travelers. So that's uh, that's a good place to to end, I think. And um, both of you, you know, uh, where can people uh, find your your work and support? You know, how can people support the the work that's going on at fellow travelers? Uh, well, one place would be on the blog itself at fellowtravelersblog.com. Um, there's also, if you want to head over to Twitter, we're on Twitter, I think is uh, at uh, ftravelersblog or on Twitter at ftravelersblog. Um, and yeah, that would probably be the best place to track down the briefing booklet. And it's, we have a separate page on the website solely devoted to the briefing booklet. Um, if you want to follow me personally, I'm at Andrew M. Lieber on Twitter as well, L-E-B as in boy, E-R. And um, yeah, Kelsey probably knows better how to reach him. Yeah, um, and so you can find me at uh, AthertonKD on Twitter. You can find my writing um, on uh, all sorts of weapons, many but not always drones at um, Wars of Future Past at Substack. I'm also regularly in popular science these days. Um, there's a piece there on um, autonomous war machines could make costly mistakes on future battlefields, which seems uh, directly relevant to this conversation. If you want to check that one out, um, and again, yeah, follow us all at Fellow Travelers. It's a it's a great project. We're very happy to be doing it. All right, uh, Kelsey Atherton and Andrew Lieber, uh, thank you both for being on the program. And uh, yeah, people should check out Fellow Travelers and uh, help them uh, get this briefing book out. Uh, we'll, I'll, like I said, I'll link to the the GoFundMe page. But if you can. Uh, chip in a few bucks and help them get this project off the ground. Uh, thanks again to both of you and uh, best of luck with this. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Derek. All right. That does it for us this week. Uh, once again, I want to thank Kelsey Atherton and Andrew Lieber for coming on the program. Uh, I will have uh, several links uh, this time in the show description. Uh, so you can check out Kelsey's work. You can check out Andrew's uh, work. You can check out fellow travelers. Uh, and uh, if you're able, pitch in and help them out with their, with their GoFundMe uh, for their briefing book project. Uh, as always, thanks to you for listening. And until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.